in the past year, we have seen, because the legal landscape has totally shifted, there has been a proliferation of new legal organizations and a need for different types of lawyers and policymakers to come and step in in order to create a new reality. This is Unladylike. I'm Kristen. And today we have to mark a terrible anniversary. On June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court handed down its decision in the case Dobbs v. Jackson, which overturned Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, upending the already paltry abortion care in the United States as we know it, wreaking havoc on the lives of people with both wanted and unwanted pregnancies, healthcare providers, and all of the grassroots organizations, hotlines, clinics that have been working overtime pre-Dobbs to help people access the reproductive care they deserve. And on Ladies, I briefly debated whether to even make this episode. Because in case you missed it, the situation is dire. Currently in the U.S., roughly two in five women live in states where abortion is now more restricted, if not outright banned, than it was prior to the Dobbs decision. I knew that the anniversary would generate a lot of media coverage, special reporting, a look back at the horrifying year that was. And when there is bad news on top of bad news, it is easy to disengage, to check out. But my internal debate didn't last very long because how can we not talk about it, right? The question for me, as is often the question on Unladylike, is, well, is there a unique perspective to add to all of this? How can Unladylike not add to the pile-on, not add to the deluge, but rather offer some helpful insights, maybe even some inspiration? And to that end, I am bringing y'all a conversation that I had earlier this week with Natalie Birnbaum. Natalie is a healthcare regulatory attorney and state policy consultant for reproductive health startups, indie clinics, abortion care providers, as well as local and national reproductive rights, health and justice organizations. Because there have been So many state and local laws that have been proposed, enacted, overturned in just the past year. The the legal side of everything is hard to grapple with for a layperson like me. And 
it feels like the situation is always changing. I wanted to talk to Natalie to get her perspective on what the legal landscape looks like today, as well as what kinds of legal progress, yes, I said progress, has been made in the past year. And I also wanted to focus on the legal side of the abortion care community by talking to Natalie, because we probably don't think all that much about the lawyers in the field, about how much of this, yes, this is bodily autonomy, this is health care, and it is also law and policy. I first talked to Natalie a few months ago. She reached out to the podcast after listening to the episode, The Abortion Pill Lawsuit Explained-ish, starring me and me alone. <laughs> and I was, also, I was very relieved to know that a, a lawyer listening was not horrified with my armchair law and order hot takes. <laughs> and also, it was refreshing and invigorating talking to someone who demystifies the legal wranglings that are going on on so many levels. And I'm excited for y'all to get to meet Natalie Birnbaum now. She has worked with the Center for Reproductive Rights, the National Council for Jewish Women, and she currently leads the abortion access group within the New York City Bar Association's Sex and Law Committee. I thought that she would just be the perfect person to check in with at this point to give us kind of a bird's eye view of what's at stake, what's ahead, and also what's giving her hope. I'm a healthcare regulatory attorney, and also I have my own policy consulting practice where I specifically advise independent abortion providers and national organizations on policy strategy related to reproductive health rights and justice. Why do I do what I do? Um, well, believe in bodily autonomy, and I really see the issue of abortion as kind of this nexus point of so many different rights. And it's really this intersection between racial justice, bodily autonomy, healthcare, women's rights, family planning. I mean, you name everything is kind of meeting at the point of abortion. And the focal point of, of what we're talking about happens to be located inside of a body that that I am born into. So it's both personal and I feel very privileged to be able to direct my, my work and my education and my resources towards working in the space. How did you kind of come to this legal focus on repro rights, healthcare, and justice? Does abortion come up in law school? Like how, how did you arrive at this? Honestly, in my law school experience, abortion did not come up, but it does in plenty of law schools. There is an organization called If When How that has an incredible student network and they're all over legal campuses. And for me, 
you know, when I went to law school, I had this idea of, you know, saving the world, social justice, cool, feminism, great. And then after I graduated, I went into corporate law. And at the law firm that I started it, they, you know, my first assignment on on pro bono work, which is, you know, the non-billable work, was working in the reproductive health rights and justice movement on policy related to protecting the areas around abortion clinics. We were essentially drafting a model law to ensure that people could safely enter abortion clinics without harassment. It wasn't before long that I kind of passed my priority of doing my billable work to the side and started working a lot with the Center for Reproductive Rights in my pro bono practice. And then really like the the sticker was I was actually doing research for an amicus brief. So any party that's interested in a court case can kind of write in to share um, how they would be impacted by a Supreme Court decision. I was helping to write a brief on behalf of Southern Reproductive Justice Organizations. And I remember doing some research and I came across this law in Mississippi, um, their sex ed law. And I don't remember the exact words, but it was like, you cannot talk about abortion in in any sex ed program. And then like the next line was something like, an unwanted physical touch is highly frowned upon. Like, obviously that's not what was in the law, but it was like something like that. And I was just like, what the hell? This is bonkers. Yeah. So that really fueled my fire. And here we are. <laughs> Um, I was working on it with the Center for Reproductive Rights on behalf of Southern Reproductive Justice Organizations. From that what the hell moment uh, with the Mississippi sex ed law to today, how has the, the landscape, the legal landscape changed? Abortion has been front and center of the headlines in the past couple of years. And and rightfully so, basically, Roe provided the right under the Constitution for an abortion under the right to privacy. So Roe said that the decision to have an abortion is between a, a patient and a woman and her doctor, and therefore it is a right to privacy. And, you know, this carried on for a couple of decades. And then in 1992, there was this case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which basically gave the state a lot more power to determine when it was in the state's interest to intervene and say, okay, no, you can't get an abortion. You can get an abortion. And this really opened the door for states to create all these sorts of creative, different legislative strategies and roadblocks and barriers on abortion access so that many, many women, especially, of course, in Republican-led states, were not actually able to access abortion. And these laws are called targeted regulation, abortion provider laws, trap laws. So really since the 90s, living in the Plains and the South, lower income women, black and brown women, immigrants, and gender nonconforming people have not had access to abortion clinics and reproductive health care. So fast forward to the Jobs League last May and then the decision 
in June, what happens? Abortion is no longer protected under the right to privacy. Go have fun, bye. Mm. So what does that mean? The the framework is no longer, okay, how are we navigating with, with this um, as a constitutional right? And that's what we've seen really in the last year, that the power to control, regulate, dictate what happens to our family planning choices, what happens to our body, what happens to our healthcare is being determined by state legislators, state prosecutors, and and even more local. And it's no longer being viewed at as a through a constitutional framework. The players who are more important are increasingly more localized, like hospital boards, right? Like how is a hospital board interpreting the the abortion law in Texas? How is a hospital board interpreting the law in Kansas, which, you know, is considered a purple state because there is abortion access, but there are restrictions. So zooming out a little bit, how would you describe what the legal side of the repro community looks like? Because I think, you know, most listeners are going to be familiar with the provider side, the clinics, what is happening on the legal side? Who are all these folks like you who are in the trenches doing all of this policy work and, you know, actually going to court and fighting for access? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. Within the legal movement itself, like there are, you know, there are two lenses through looking at the abortion movement um, and they they work symbiotically. But it's important to distinguish them. So we have the reproductive rights movement, which is generally considered just having the constitutional right to get an abortion and being able to do that. And then there's the reproductive justice framework, which is an intersectional human rights framework created by Black women in the South that has been shepherded by the organization Sister Song, which is a great example of the grassroots local advocacy groups that have really been working on these issues for decades and even even more vigorously obviously now and and in the reproductive justice framework there are four main tenets which are the right to bodily autonomy the right to have a child the right not to have a child and the right to parent children in a safe and sustainable community so you have traditional reproductive rights organizations like Planned Parenthood, the Center for Reproductive Rights that um, take on national strategy and also help support local strategy. And then you have reproductive justice focused organizations, which are like Sister Song, and they are more focused on the voices of the most marginalized of Black and Brown communities and really working from a grassroots perspective. And honestly, it's very exciting because in a way, like, you know, we always say row was the floor, not the ceiling. And what happens when the floor is lifted beneath you? So now what? Even under row, the laws are racist and economically pejorative. And for example, there is the federal Hyde Amendment, which prevents federal Medicaid funding from going towards any 
form of abortion care. And that is nothing new. But when we look at that from a economic justice and a racial justice perspective, there's a real opportunity to completely shift the narrative there and ask ourselves, okay, well, why is that even still on the books? That doesn't have to do with the ruling in Dobbs, um, but it's a cultural mindset shift that we have the opportunity because we're starting from ground zero to change. And in the organizations that have popped up over the past year, they have a much more focused um, lens on equity than we have seen previously and information sharing. And there is a ton of litigation each time a conservative or Republican legislator introduces a new ban in a state, there there are people on the ground and the center really is leading the charge on the litigation combating this. Like, for example, Wyoming recently is, is the only state to have passed a medication abortion ban. This piece of legislation was introduced and now um, a judge has temporarily ordered a stay on it. So it can't be enforced. And without like the litigators on the ground actively fighting every time one of these laws is passed, the country would actually look a lot different and have Mm. far less access. That's a question that I have too of, you know, uh, there are many of these judicial positions that are elected, but there are also these lifetime judgeships, these federal appointees who are now just able to kind of, you know, sit on the bench. And like we've seen in Texas with Kazmarek, you know, have cases that are essentially kind of funneled to their desks because they're, it seems like they're their judicial philosophies are so clear cut that they know that someone like a Kazmarek is going to rule in favor of banning Mifepristone. You know, like we have these federal judgeships and the system is in place. And so everything feels almost doomed. <laughs> is there any... Is there any more optimistic perspective that you can share? Absolutely. I'm a a big fan of optimism. I feel like if you're working in this space and you're not at least slightly optimistic, then it's going to be a tough time. Going back to something I had said earlier, you know, like rock bottom, what, what do you do, right? You start, you really take a critical look at, at the, at the landscape, at at our language, what what are we talking about here, right? So yeah, it's a long game, but we have this incredible opportunity to really look at what we're talking about here. So we hear the word abortion, and this incredibly brilliant woman I had the pleasure of speaking with, one of the pioneers in the advertising field, said to me, well, if you think about the word abortion, inherently the word abort is in there. What does abort mean? It means to stop. So you hear this word and you're like, stop. Somewhere like energetically, linguistically, mm-hmm. cool. And we have been you know, trained and fed so much anti-abortion propaganda for so many years 
that, you know, it's in our cultural zeitgeist to, to question what we're talking about and to feel, oh, this is an edgy topic. But we have an opportunity to shift that narrative. I mean, when we have one movement calling themselves a pro-life movement and one movement being a pro-choice movement, rightfully so, but what are we actually talking about here? We're, we're talking about the right to choose our families. We're talking about saving the lives of women and children. And like, that's what, that's what this movement is actually about. And, and so the, the excitement part here is like, yes, does our country have the highest maternal mortality rates in the industrialized world? It sure does. Do we have incredibly arcane and, you know, violent laws and a human rights crisis happening in our country because of our abortion policy? Yeah, those those things are absolutely true. And we're in a moment where we can culturally shift that narrative. And so while the courts may feel inaccessible right now, first of all, like that's not true because ultimately we can go out and vote. And in those places where you can elect your your judges, go do that. And and also state and local prosecutors. Like everything has become so much more local. So your local vote matters now more than ever. And your voice matters in your company. What does your employment policy say about abortion? What is your company's public stance on abortion? Can you have these conversations there? What can we do? It's so overwhelming and it's so fair, like especially given the greater political landscape right now and and the climate crisis and just like everything that we're so overly saturated with you just keep questioning the reality in which we're living in where you have doctors who are not able to provide life-saving care to women that are carrying non-viable fetuses that are about to have a stillborn or a miscarrying, and you have a doctor who is weighing the risks of going to jail or criminalization, civil penalties or losing their license against providing care to that person. And literally, I'm not sure if this one was out of Texas or Idaho, but there are plenty more like this where the doctor has told the patient to go to the parking lot Wait until you're in septic shock because you're not sick enough for me to provide you with an abortion at this moment. This is a human rights crisis that we're in. I'm hopeful that perhaps seeing raising the awareness just to the level of dystopian reality and egregiousness that we're currently living in will create a cultural shift and will create a paradigm shift. And only once we do that can we really shift the laws, right? And we could do both simultaneously. You know, I know it's a heavy example, but these are the things that we really want to look at and question and talk about. So that way, when we are voting and going to the polls, for example, one positive thing more on the (laughs) political side of things is every time, you know, abortion has been on the ballot post-Dobbs, access and rights have been protected or expanded. So, you know, abortion on the ballot during the midterms helped to enshrine constitutional rights to abortion in three states and in three other states where there were 
ballot initiatives diminishing abortion rights or access, they did not pass. So that's a really good sign that our vote matters. Also, you know, recent Pew studies show that our country and our population's feelings towards abortion and approval of abortion access has increased dramatically. So that tells us that people are starting to get it. Why is a state legislator saying, especially in the case of rape and incest, like that's what's happening. They're they're taking away the exceptions, like these like very honestly pitiful exceptions for rape and incest and just completely getting rid of them. What? Like what are you, what are you trying to do? What's the goal here? And I think just like looking at these things, having these conversations, taking a step back and being like, this is absolutely crazy can help, you know? There's times for action, there's times for different types of action, but like I just really am a firm believer that community building, conversation and education and like empowering ourselves, empowering women, empowering non-binary people, empowering trans people, and empowering men also in their sexuality and their ability to feel like they can choose their own lives and realities and outcomes. Like the more we strengthen those values and tenets in society, the more and more absurd these abortion policies become. Well, and something that that you and I have talked about offline is this language aspect of it and how wildly successful the pro-life movement has been in terms of branding. I mean, even just the language pro-life, but their wholesale recasting of a fetus as unborn child and on and on and on. There's an entire language now, pseudoscientific language that anti-abortionists use to basically counter any kind of abortion access with, well, you know, we're here to save the children, to save the unborn children. And on the legal side of it, like for me, one of the most enraging aspects of reading, for instance, Justice Alito's majority opinion in Dobbs Mm. is how it is laced with unscientific mischaracterizations and just falsehoods about how pregnancy works, how abortion works, like safety statistics, all of these things, the loaded language that is used. And I remember last year, you know, reading the majority decision, just asking, like, where are the fact checkers? Is it just okay, essentially, for judges to decide on, you know, their own scientific reality of what is or isn't and just write their opinion based on that? You are pulling on my heartstrings. Um, (laughs) No, it's crazy. Obviously, it doesn't fly. Obviously, in law school, we're not like, hey, like rely on junk science, right? Like when I was writing back in my litigation days, when I was writing briefs, like you want to cite to the most legitimate source, the most legitimate science, right? All of these cases and um, anti-abortion laws that have been litigated in the past few decades, they're, they're, you know, all using this junk science and recycling the same thing. Like this is not 
a new strategy. It's just becoming accepted somehow now by the courts. But hopefully it won't continue in that direction because it's such bullshit. I mean, but like, and so one example of that is in the Kazmarek case, right? Like the, the, the plaintiffs are just completely living in a different reality than like the, the reality that, that everybody else lives in. Mifepristone is 98% safe and effective. The FDA has done more testing on this drug than nearly anything else because of, of all of the, you know, noise around it. And so, you know, when, when you have a court citing this junk science and, and questioning the FDA's approval process that approves every single drug on the market in this country, this is a problem. Um, this is a problem so much so that you have drug companies like Pfizer and the big drug companies intervening and saying and writing a letter to say, this could really disrupt the way drugs were approved in this country if you if you question the FDA's approval process and and use junk science to do that. And and I think, you know, this reliance on on junk science, look how things were in the Trump era and how that really changed the paradigm of what what we're relying on um, as our sources and how we're interpreting reality and who we're believing and the narratives we're saying. And I think actually it's a reflection of of our current culture. Like we're we're constantly living in these like manicured realities and and manipulated realities. And I am hoping and I'm hopeful that you know the that the law will will bounce back and the legal scholars and the justices will realize the importance of relying on science. And I think that, you know, as unfortunately more and more women die and people die because of the reliance on junk science and more and more doctors and people in the medical profession speak out that, that hopefully that can shift. But the more we highlight the actual reality, even though it is hard to hold you know, the more we can actually effectuate change, like the more we hear things that are hard to hear and hold space for it, like the fact that in Idaho, if you are a nine-year-old girl and you are raped, you cannot legally have an abortion. That's heavy. And it's important to hear so that we can create that cultural change, both in our courts, the way we rely on information and amongst our friend circles. Are there any post-Dobbs legal developments, whether that is, you know, state laws, lawsuits, rulings, that you especially want listeners to know about? Yeah, great. So I've been spending the better part of my year working on shield law legislation. So, you know, something that you alluded to earlier is like, okay, well, what do we do when these are our politicians and these are our judges and they all are of this mindset? Well, there are states where that is not the case with expanded access to abortion care. So on the flip side of things, we have seen um, the states that are typically democratic and and value abortion access and bodily autonomy and healthcare expanding their protections for abortion. So 
shield laws essentially protect to the highest degree possible in alignment with the constitution, have to preface that, providers, abortion funds, people that help others get abortion care and abortion seekers themselves from the laws of another state where it is criminalized or there are civil penalties or if you're a provider and there are licensure penalties. So 15 states and D.C., a few of them had passed them before Dobbs, but since Dobbs have, have enacted these shield laws. And what this means is that people from states like Tennessee or Texas or Idaho or any of the banned states can go in to a state like California or New York or Maryland and see a provider and access care and that provider need not fear that they will then be sent to the banned state and be subject to their laws. So it creates this assurance for providers to be able to offer care. And something very cool that has happened is also the expansion of telehealth for medication abortion. And that has really increased in the year post-Dobbs. So the use of telehealth for medication abortion has increased tremendously in in the past year. And so, so five states now also offer those protections for a healthcare provider that sends pills to a person in a banned state. So that means you can maintain your patient provider relationship and get healthcare that is within um, the American healthcare system while you're living in a banned state from a provider located in a state where they are protected. Now, there's a caveat there because it is very risky for that provider in the sense that if they leave their state, such as New York, which just passed their um, telemedicine shield law last Friday, then they will be. That doesn't change the law in Texas. It doesn't change the law in Tennessee. But it does say that, okay, these providers are protected in our state. So a provider can weigh their risk analysis and and there are providers that are doing this. And like, these are the heroes, right? Like the lawyers, policy people, great. We're in the trenches. We're doing the best we can. But like the healthcare providers are heroes. Like they're risking everything to make sure that people in marginalized states or states without access, states with bans, are able to to get the care, even if that means that they can't leave their home state of New York. So the states that have the the shield the telemedicine shield laws right now are Vermont, Massachusetts, Colorado, Washington, and New York, and California is poised to also pass a telehealth shield law as well to provide care across state lines. I've been seeing a lot of headlines along the lines of is a national abortion ban next? Is that what Republicans are poised to bring to the table? And from your POV on the legal side of things, is that a focus or major concern? Or is that not even the question to be asking right now? 
Yeah. Listen, I think that that's been the agenda. The agenda of the of the conservative right has been to outlaw abortion in this country entirely. So you're absolutely right. It's a concern. And it has been the concern for decades, like since the Reagan administration, that's been the concern. And, you know, earlier you had spoken about the fetal personhood language, the unborn child language. And, and that is like the tip. It's like, it's, it's revealing that agenda, right? Mm -hmm. So if we are, if suddenly in all of these state legislatures, unborn fetuses have the same right as a human being, the human being that is carrying that unborn fetus. And then that, that like that sack of cells has the same human rights as the, as the pregnant person. Well, how can you have an abortion? Right. So yeah, there, there is a national abortion ban and an agenda to ban abortion entirely. And more likely from like a policy perspective, because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, there is overwhelming support for abortion access throughout our country. And politicians are beginning to catch on to that, including the conservative right-wing politicians. And so, you know, earlier this year, I think it was Lindsey Graham who introduced legislation to create a, a national abortion ban up to a certain amount of weeks. I can't remember what they were now, but that is what, you know, we're more likely to see. So at the state level, introducing the, and it's not even introducing at this point, but continuing to shift the narrative of, mm-hmm. of these fetal personhood laws And simultaneously, you know, their whole strategy is to go so extreme that when they get to the middle, it seems normal, right? So if we look back like five years ago, even, you know, we were litigating 12-week bans and that was crazy. A 12-week ban was crazy. As um, repeating the words of Michelle Goodwin, when I heard her speak earlier this week, who is an incredible scholar and RJ leader, RJ is in reproductive justice. It used to be that the incest and rape bans were a bridge too far. That's no longer the case, right? So if you are introducing fetal personhood language, and yeah, maybe we all think that that's crazy and it's not going to pass, then what's going to happen? Then, you know, depending on the political majority in our Congress and who is elected to be the next president, when a, a national abortion ban is introduced, but the ban is at six weeks or 12 weeks, maybe it doesn't seem as crazy, right? So, Mm -hmm. and that has been, and effectively, the strategy of the anti-choice movement for decades. And it's been effective in the sense that it got us to this point where you have 14 states in our country that have near total abortion bans. And you have Supreme Court justices and district court justices using language like unborn child and fetal personhood in their briefs. I'm wondering from, you know, especially from conversations that you've been having, especially over this past week around the anniversary of Dobbs, Mm -hmm. what what is keeping folks going? Is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, totally. I mean... I think that 
there is a new focus on community building and community care. What really inspires me is the access to the pills. And for example, the like mifepristone and the abortion pill, there's less and less stigma around pills as we talk about them. And, you know, there's like I mentioned before, Plan C and other organizations like Shout Your Abortion that do um, incredible work to destigmatize abortion care. And I think that, you know, when you're working in these spaces, it's really inspiring to be around a community of people that so that so deeply value doing this work and are doing it from a community-based approach and from an approach that, you know, something I love about the organization Shout Your Abortion, their whole thing is like normalizing abortion. It, it's, as we said in the beginning of the call, it symbolizes something culturally um, and in in our legal policy, you know, in, in everything that that is cool. It is cool to advocate for our right to choose our livelihoods and our and our livelihood outcomes and other places where that I'm that I'm finding hope is really just like again grassroots activism and watching these shifts happen. The shield laws felt impossible a year ago. Like there was a lot, a lot of pushback. And then you see through the activism and through having lawyers and policymakers ally with providers and doctors and investors and the VC community, like there, there are all of these bridges that are suddenly being fortified among cross-sector, whether that is like VCs for repro, which, you know, focuses on getting money into the hands of entrepreneurs who are investing in abortion access and uh, amongst other things. You know, there's a new summit called the Reproductive Healthcare Summit and more and more big law firms that are suddenly interested in looking at these issues and contributing and helping. So, yeah, I think what's inspiring to me is is having conversations like this building connections and seeing how from no matter what profession you're in you know this issue isn't housed in the legal and policy world it is it is an issue that pervades every aspect of society and touches every person and watching others awaken to that and build relationships and contribute whether you're a graphic designer making like cool comics or um, you are a big time wealthy investor, you want to put your money somewhere like these relationships, these conversations, the interest in talking about our reproductive health, our sexualities, our bodies, racial justice, economic inequities, like that's what's inspiring me and really, really keeps me personally going. And I think that is something similar for a lot of people in the movement and a lot of people nationwide. And it's just like, yeah, this is heavy information. It's not great. And the conversations are inspiring. Like when we first connected, I was so inspired. I was like, so stoked to talk to you. And 
when I have these conversations with people, it's just, it's really great to feel resonance and alignment and and get creative. Because like I said before, when there's no floor, when we're starting from scratch, there's a real room for creativity, which I think is also inspiring. Well, is there anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure listeners know? I think I'd also want to bring in that we're not just talking about abortion, right? Like gender affirming care is also largely under attack. And a lot of the shield laws also protect gender affirming care. And that we also want to be advocating for contraception access and keeping our eye on that. And, you know, in a positive note as well, I think that lawmakers and our legal community and policymakers have have caught on to the importance of making sure that contraception access is protected. So, you know, they're an advisory board um, unanimously voted the other week to approve an over-the-counter birth control pill, which would make birth control more accessible. And the executive branch, um, the Biden administration issued an executive order last week to improve access and affordability for over-the-counter contraception. So we do see shifts happening. And to remember that abortion is like the hot, thorny, fiery issue. And we can expand the way we're thinking about this issue and advocate for for ourselves just in our personal lives and our and the way we move through the world and the way we talk about our sexuality and our choices and and really destigmatize de- abortion by you know so much of what your podcast does is like taking the shame out of our realities as people with vaginas <laughs> and I'll leave on that note <laughs> Thank you so much to Natalie Birnbaum for taking the time during a very busy week to come and talk to me, talk to us about the abortion legal landscape. And if you want to learn more about Natalie and get in touch, you can head to her website, NatalieBirnbaum.com. If you are interested in finding organizations to get involved with and follow, you can't go wrong with places like Abortion Access Front, Shout Your Abortion, Plan C, If, When, How, the Online Abortion Resource Squad, and URGE, which stands for Unite for Reproductive and Gender Equity. If you want to support an independent feminist podcast, unafraid to talk about abortion, well... Hello, you're listening to that podcast, and you can directly support it by heading to patreon.com slash unladylikemedia and becoming a dearest patron, joining the Unladies Room for $5 a month or more. You get weekly bonus episodes, uncut interviews with some of our featured guests, and my deepest gratitude, the Patreon is a lifeline. It is a lifeline for Unladylike and for me. And I appreciate each and every one of you who has contributed over there. 
patreon.com slash unladylikemedia. And as always, you can email me at hello at unladylike.co. You can also DM me on Instagram at unladylikemedia. You can also find Unladylike on TikTok and Twitter at unladylikemedia. Unladylike is an Unladylike Media production, executive produced, hosted, written, and edited by me, Kristen Conger. Our music is by Flamingo Shadow, Amit Mate Cohen, and Sarah Tudson. Until next week. What is the most unladylike thing about? Oh, wow. Okay. I should have prepared. This is the real question I should have prepared for, right? (laughs) The most unladylike thing about me. (sighs) I would probably say this is great that I'm gonna say it's probably right now I have a bit of a cold right now and whenever I get cold I just like I'm like constantly hawking loogies so I would say like my like my loogie hawking hacking situation that I have going on right now feels pretty unladylike Yes, yes. <laughs> Hawk those loogies. <laughs> oh, yeah, girl. I'm getting after it. <laughs>